A few days ago, Z and I were invited by a BHP listener, Captain Scarlet, to tour the ship that he commands in the U.S. Navy. It was the USS Independence. Because it turned out that it was docked here in Portland for Fleet Week, and he and his crew were kind enough to show us their amazing high-tech ship. And Captain Scarlet indulged our geeking out for hours, and answered all our stupid questions, and we really learned a ton. For example, did you know that minesweeping is still a thing at sea? We didn't, and the way they handle it just sounds really cool. So, a big thank you to listener Captain Scarlet for the wonderful afternoon, and safe sailing to you and all the crew of the USS Independence. Alright, let's start the show. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 319, The Battle of Malden. And this is a banner moment in British history. Even if you don't know much about the battle itself, there's a chance that you've heard its name. And much of what we know about the actual battle comes from a fragment of Anglo-Saxon poetry that's 325 lines long. And that fragment gives us insight not just into the events of the battle itself, or some legendary version of them, but it also tells us a lot about Anglo-Saxon warrior and honor culture. It's a really important document for this period of history. And I got my hands on a translation of this fragment and did a reading of it over on the members feed. So if you'd like to listen to that, along with the nearly 100 previous members' episodes, you can sign up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for far less than what it would cost you to feast with your hearth were odd. And thank you very much to Matt, Bill, and Wallace for signing up already. Battles don't appear out of thin air, not even in honor cultures. There's a reason and a context that develops long before soldiers or warriors enter a field prepared to do violence. And the Battle of Malden comes with a lot of context. We left off in 988. And on that year, Archbishop Dunstan, who had been on the forefront of some pretty momentous changes in both ecclesiastical and secular English life, had died. And his death meant that yet another constraint was lifted from the king and his council, who were currently engaged in a campaign to rapidly transfer power away from the eldermen and the bishops and place it in the hands of the king and his friends. It was a shift in policy that had put the crown in conflict with the archbishop and many of his fellow Benedictine reformers. And we see plenty of evidence that the king and his council were locking horns with the Benedictines. And many of the counts from this period might make you think that the king was openly hostile to the church. I mean, he was stealing lands, he ravaged a diocese, and he even got a stern talking to by Dunstan himself. But one of the fascinating aspects of this period is that while the king and his circle were moving against those who would challenge their power, they weren't moving against any specific ideological perspective. They weren't acting as counter-reformists. While they had moved against a number of Benedictine reformers, it wasn't due to any animosity towards the Benedictine movement. In fact, when Dunstan died, he was replaced by Athelgar of Selzy, who had a long history with Benedictine reform and who was even a disciple of Athelwald. And we see no evidence that his elevation to the Archbishopric of Canterbury was opposed by King Athelred. It seems like King Athelred was cool with the Benedictines, so long as they didn't get in his way. Because what King Athelred doesn't appear to have liked were checks on his power. So while the kingdom was in turmoil, and it had been that way for quite a while, there was no apparent ideological direction to it. The king and his circle were simply looking for power and wealth, and everyone else was just trying to keep their heads down and hold on to what they had. 
and into the middle of all this mounting greed and chaos came a fleet of Vikings. And this wasn't just a little band who were looking for a smash and grab, like the sort that had been harrying the English coast for the past few years. This was a campaign fleet. A big one. The Vikings began with the monasteries that they found along the coastline of southern Wales. They would raid and loot one, then move on to the next. In all, a total of five monasteries were pillaged. And as you might remember, monasteries tended to be wealthy and weren't all that well protected. So at every stop, this fleet got significantly richer. But they weren't done yet. There was a town in the area that they were well aware of. It had been the target of at least two previous raids, one in 918 and another in 977. And the reason why the Danes kept coming back to this settlement was because it housed a mint. The only downside that it had was that it was also a burr which meant that it wouldn't be as easy a target as the monasteries were. But this fleet was large, and it was experienced, and they were in the area. So the fleet crossed into Somerset, and they headed towards the Burr of Watchet. But while the king and his inner circle were distracted by their own political machinations, that didn't mean that England was completely without any defense. The Burgle system that was launched by Alfred was still in place. The Ferd were still stationed all throughout England in their military hardpoints. And there were still thanes out there who were ready to take up arms in defense of their lands. And we know of at least two of them. Thane Gata of Devonshire and Thane Stremwald. Because they called the Ferd and prepared to meet the oncoming Viking tide. And we have a record of the battle that comes from the Chronicle, John of Worcester, and one of the lives of St. Oswald. And what we're told is that Watch It was plundered. So presumably, the Vikings managed to strike that town quickly before any serious resistance could be mustered. But soon thereafter, Thanes, Gotta, and Stremwald arrived with a force of Devonshiremen. We're told that the Northmen had spared no one in their sack of Watch It, and that they were setting fire to everything in sight. But as the Englishmen approached, the Northmen prepared for battle. We're told that they were armed with gleaming swords, poisoned quivers, and helmets of bronze, striking terror into all who saw them. And that's a strange detail for anyone who knows what they're looking for, because helmets are actually a very rare find in English archaeology from this period. Furthermore, why bronze helmets? We're well into the Iron Age, and bronze is a rather soft metal in comparison with something like iron. So this seems like an odd choice. But before we take it on face value, we have to acknowledge that this description came from an ecclesiastical record that was written by Bertfirth. And so he might have been speaking in biblical metaphors, because there is a bronze helmet that was mentioned in the Bible. It was worn by Goliath. So was Bertfirth just saying that the Scandinavian pirates were really tall? Maybe. Or maybe, much like how I didn't know that modern navies were still using sea mines, maybe scholarly types from this era didn't know much about warfare either and were getting the details wrong. It's hard to know. But then again, there is a Scandinavian poem that depicts King Hakon, the one who is Athelstan's foster son, as wearing a bronze helmet. So maybe bronze helmets were a thing. I'm not sure. But regardless of whether or not the Northmen were wearing really shiny hats, one thing the sources agree on is that there were a lot of them, 
that they were looking to rumble and that, quote, a savage battle took place, end quote. We're told that the assembled English force fought bravely and that many of them fell in the ensuing melee, including Thane Goda and Thane Stremwald. And when Stremwald fell, his men continued to stand and fight, even though their position was overwhelmed, choosing to die an honorable death rather than to live on in shame. But for as devastating as the English losses were, the Norse losses were even worse. And as the battle raged on, things began to turn against the Northmen, until finally the raiding army broke and fled the field. The life of St. Oswald goes on to say that the English were victorious, but it came at a great price, suffering terrible losses in the process. But this Viking threat was now so severe that it was appearing once again in the Chronicle, though it's not entirely clear what King Athelred and his council did in response. The record doesn't mention anything regarding military or defensive developments in the year that follows this attack. There's no discussion of organized offenses, no talk of bolstering the Burgle defensive system, nothing. Instead, we're told that Archbishop Athelgar of Canterbury died on February 13th of 990, having only been at the post for less than two years. And then he was replaced by Archbishop Sigaric, who was sometimes known as Sigaric Sirio, which means Sigaric the Serious. And it's thought that Sigaric might have been one of Dunstan's acolytes, as his previous positions were often in close proximity to the old Benedictine reformer. But Mr. Sirius's pedigree isn't why he's so important. Rather, it's the fact that the appointment of Sigaric gives us a window into the geopolitical events that were surrounding these Viking attacks in England. You see, to become an Archbishop of Canterbury, you can't just be appointed. You need to get a pallium, a kind of holy shawl. And typically, this means that the newly invested archbishops had to take a road trip to Rome to get their spiritual fashion accessory directly from the Pope himself. And Sigaric was no different. So in the spring of 990, he and his envoy headed out. But getting some new duds wasn't the only purpose for this trip. These churchmen were also instructed to have a chat with the Pope while they were down there and tell him about something that had been bothering the English crown. Do you remember several episodes back when I told you about the rise to power of Duke Richard of Normandy? If not, go back and re-listen to episode 315, because this part is actually key to what happens next. But to quickly remind you, the short version is that Duke Richard had a beef with the English crown, and he was also closely allied with Scandinavia, owing his rise to their support in his war for the duchy. And one of the ways he appears to have been repaying his Scandinavian allies was by allowing them to use his ports while they were out pillaging his rivals in England. It was a twofer. And as a bonus, all kinds of goods and slaves were flowing into his ports. So it was a threefer. But by 990, King Athelred had cottoned on to what was happening. And in response, he did exactly what you would expect him to do. He tattled to Pope John XV and asked him to make Richard stop picking on him. But the trip to Rome is a long one, and Archbishop Sigaric didn't get to Rome until the summer. But once he arrived, he not only succeeded in getting his fancy new scarf, he also secured the Pope's support in telling Richard to stop helping the pagans. And so the fully invested Archbishop Sigaric was now accompanied not just by his own envoy, but also by a papal envoy led by Bishop Leo of Trevi. And this big holy roadshow began to make the long trip back to Normandy and to England. 
And it turns out that the distance back is the same as the distance there. So they didn't arrive until Christmas of 990, almost a full year after this whole scarf quest had begun. But at long last, Bishop Leo's papal envoy was able to meet with King Athelred and draw up terms. The resulting treaty said that the king and the duke should provide reparations for any injuries that were sustained, which is something that makes me wonder how bad this conflict had gotten prior to papal intervention, since the implication here is that both sides had injuries that they were upset about. It went on to state that they shouldn't entertain each other's enemies, which of course is a reference to Duke Richard's practice of offering Vikings safe harbor. And finally, it dictated that they wouldn't entertain each other's subjects unless they were able to provide sealed letters of commendation. And that's a fascinating detail. And it makes me wonder if things have become so bad between these two that there were defections occurring. It almost sounds like people were switching sides and committing social espionage like a bunch of chain-mailed mean girls. Because if not, then why is this provision in the agreement? But eventually, the terms were agreed upon and the papal envoy boarded a ship bound for Rouen, and they were accompanied this time by the Bishop of Sherborne and two king's thanes. And there, they presented their terms to Duke Richard. And on March 1st of 991, so now fully a year after Archbishop Sigrick was first sent to Rome, the agreement was finalized. And based on the success of this mission, Sigrick the Sirius had been elevated to that much-coveted inner circle of king's counselors. It had taken a long time, and more walking than the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but finally the conflict had been resolved. Duke Richard of Normandy would no longer shelter the enemies of England, and that would go a long way towards stemming the Viking tide. Which meant that King Athelred and his inner council could get back to whatever they were up to. Probably sketchy real estate deals. And what happened next is briefly recorded in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle but we get a much more detailed account via a 325-line fragment of Anglo-Saxon poetry. Because while the chronicle gives us the bare events, that poem really puts some meat on the bones. But that being said, it's not perfect. First of all, it's only a fragment. We don't have the beginning, nor do we have the end of the poem. Second, we have no idea who wrote it, nor the context under which it was written. And third, because it's a poem, it's hard to know how much of it was real and how much was literary flourish. After all, it doesn't appear to have been recorded by an eyewitness. And many of the themes strike more as a tale of heroism rather than a direct unbiased account of the events. Moreover, it's likely that this poem was transmitted orally for quite some time before being written down. But... The main beats of this story, as told in the poem, are confirmed in the Chronicle. So for the purpose of this episode, I'm going to tell the story as it exists both in the poem and the Chronicle. So about five months after the treaty between Duke Richard and King Athelred was signed, ostensibly a treaty bringing an end to the Viking attacks, a large fleet was spotted off the coast of England. Over 90 ships were counted, each of them bristling with Viking warriors. And based on other records, it's thought that leading this fleet was Olaf Tryggvason and quite possibly King Swain Forkbeard of Denmark and Norway. First, they struck Folkestone, which was just a short hop across the channel from Normandy. Then they struck Sandwich. Then Ipswich. They couldn't be stopped. 
And shortly after looting the merchant town of Ipswich, the fleet rode into the Blackwater Estuary and moored themselves on a marshy tidal island called Northy Island. The fleet, which had been a significant threat ever since it first appeared, was now signaling that it could be far more dangerous than a simple raiding campaign. Despite being only one mile across at its widest point, Northy Island was quite useful. It was the perfect staging ground. The Blackwater and associated marshes protected it on the north side, while Southy Creek and associated marshes protected it on the south side. The only approach to the island was across a small causeway on the western side, and that was only available during low tide. The rest of the time, the island provided the army with an impressively defensible position, from which they could quickly strike many of the wealthy towns and burrs in the surrounding area, and they wouldn't even need to use their ships. Even more worryingly, Northy Island was only about a day's march from London. But, while it was a decent location, there were many other places where the fleet could have been well-positioned as well. So why specifically were they stationed at Northy Island? Well, everything important in the Age of Athelred appears in the real estate deals. And if you look at the charters, things start to make sense. Because this very defensible river island was also the island that was nearest to a place called Bocking. And it turns out that the Lord of Bocking at this time was a man named Athelrich. And according to a charter dated to around 995 or 996, Athelrich of Bocking was a treasonous little shit. He had conspired with King Swain Forkbeard and intended to receive him and his fleet upon his arrival in Essex. But here's the thing. Athelrich wasn't the Elderman of Essex. That title belonged to a man named Burtnoth. So the fact that Athelrich, not Burtnoth, was planning on receiving Swain Forkbeard gives me the impression that not all of Essex was behind him on this plan, and that Athelrich of Bocking might have been trying to get a promotion by defecting to the King of Denmark and bringing his lands with him. The trouble, though, was that his boss, Elderman Burtnoth, was from the old school. He was one of the older members of the Witan, a battle-hardened veteran and part of the old guard who had served the crown for decades. Not exactly the kind of person to switch sides, nor was he the kind of person to tolerate his underling switching sides. So what Athelrich of Bocking was doing was pretty gutsy. But considering the way the king and his inner council had been behaving, and how the crown seemed helpless to stop the large-scale Viking fleets that had been arriving... Well, you can imagine why Athelrich might have felt like a change was needed, and how it might have even been welcomed by his fellow East Saxons. And I'm not sure what happened next, but something clearly went wrong with this scheme, because we don't have any records of the Ferd of Bocking joining the Vikings during this period. Even worse, someone told the king about his plot, because it appears later in the charters. And that is really bad news for Athelrich. Because this king had shown everyone in Rochester that he wasn't the kind of person to just roll with the punches. He took things really personally. So Athelrich was in deep shit. And as for the Vikings in Essex, well, Athelrich's failure was creating a few problems for them as well. Because rather than being greeted as liberators, they were greeted by the second most powerful elderman in England, Elderman Burtnoth of Essex. And that battle-hardened warrior was joined by his Hearthrod and the Ferd of Essex. 
And in that moment, I wonder if the Vikings regretted going on a pre-coronation raiding bonanza along the coast of Kent and East Anglia, because all of that greed had cost them the element of surprise. But, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda. And by the time that Olaf and his ships were moored off the island, Burtnoth and the Ferd were ready for them. They were positioned across the narrow causeway, near the town of Malden, and they were waiting. He ordered them to form a shield wall directly on the causeway, forcing the Vikings into a position of significant disadvantage. You see, the Viking army that occupied the island was vast, with an estimated force that numbered in the thousands. And while Burtnoth and the Ferd of Essex almost certainly had less, that really didn't matter all that much. Because to get off the island by land, the Scandinavians had to cross that narrow causeway. And they had to do it at low tide. The element that made the island such a perfect defensible staging ground had also made it a perfect trap. By placing his shield wall on the causeway, it ensured that to get out, the Vikings would be bunched up, limiting the impact of their numbers. And they would be fighting on marshy, uneven ground. Furthermore, they'd only be able to fight for a limited amount of time before they'd be forced to retreat due to the oncoming tides. Burtnoth might have been old, but he was experienced and he had completely turned the tables on the Vikings. Seeing this, the Northmen sent out a messenger, asking for them to come to terms. The herald walked to the edge of the water and shouted out his message to the Eldermen and the assembled English Ferd. He said that there was no need for war. No one had to die today. All they had to do is pay the Viking lords a tribute, and then the fleet would leave in peace. Across the waters, Elderman Burtnoth stood alongside his warriors, as was his place. And he was decorated in gleaming armor and gripped in his hand a gilded sword. He had been born for this moment. He was an Elderman, he was a member of the king's Witan, and unlike the young princelings that now populated Athelred's court, Elderman Burtnoth hewed to the old ways. He was a noble who would have been quite at home in the days of Penda. And at last, fate had brought him an opportunity to attain glory and honor as his ancestors had done. So he shouted back to the herald and told them that no tribute would be paid today. He said that it was shameful that their ships already contained English treasures, all the more so that they had been acquired without battle, and that if they wanted to keep those treasures, they owed a debt which could only be paid in war. With that, he raised his shield and ordered his warriors to advance towards the Vikings. But the tide was too high. And as they waded deeper into the waters, it became clear that mere courage wasn't going to overcome the natural obstacle that stood in front of him. So all he could do is order his men to hold their shield wall on the bank and wait. But eventually the tide went out. And the warriors who had been staring at each other across the water now had a chance to make good on their promises. And this time, it was the Danes who advanced. A brave Viking broke from the ranks and charged headlong at the English shield wall. And Wolfstan, a member of Burtnoth's guard, thrust out his spear and impaled him. But that Viking wasn't alone. He was just the vanguard, and a tide of Northmen pressed across the causeway, crushing into the shield wall of the East Saxon Ferd. But urged on by Elderman Burtnoth, the English shield wall held fast. The Vikings were in a brutal situation. The English were standing on solid ground, unlike the Danes who were struggling through the waterlogged marsh. 
And even worse, this fjord was able to position themselves in such a way that eliminated any advantage that the Vikings had from their sheer numbers. Continuing in this way would be suicide for them. So the pirate army withdrew, and they sent out their messenger again and made a request. They asked to be allowed to cross unimpeded so that they might engage the English in honorable combat. Something about Elderman Burtnoth told the Viking leaders that he was from the old school. They seemed to have noticed that Anglo-Saxon honor culture ran deep within him, and that what he was fighting for was ultimately glory. And graciously allowing an enemy to cross would be completely within the bounds of normalcy when it came to honorable combat. And sure enough, Burtnoth granted their request. But the trouble here was that while Burtnoth was here for honorable combat, the Vikings weren't here in search of glory. They had a very different goal. They wanted to win. So as Burtnoth and his men retreated from their incredibly defensive position on the causeway, the Vikings quickly crossed, taking advantage of the situation. The Eldermen chose an even battlefield near Malden for the ritual honorable combat. And he took no advantage, leaving it all up to the strength of his army and to fate. But while the narrow causeway had enabled him to position only his fiercest warriors at the front, engaging in an open battlefield meant that he needed the full furred. And while many of his men had spoken bravely about the coming battle while they were safely inside their feasting hall, Burtnoth's captains were skeptical of the furred's courage and suspected that they would break once the fighting truly began. But Burtnoth still trusted in the strength of his men. And showing his adherence to the old ways, he took his position on the shield wall, right alongside his own hearthrod. He would lead them, not from the back, but fighting side by side with his men. As the Vikings assembled on the field and organized into their own shield walls, I'm sure they couldn't believe their luck. But, while their position had significantly improved, they still hadn't won yet. So they locked their shields and advanced on the English. And what followed was a brutal, prolonged shield wall battle. And despite their shields, the fighting was furious and bloody. Numerous men fell under the onslaught of spears and arrows. Even Elderman Burtnoth's own kinsmen fell in the chaos of the melee. But despite the mounting casualties, both sides stood firm, refusing to give ground. And at every step, Elderman Burtnoth urged his army forward. By being in such a central position, he was able to bolster their courage and remind them of their duty, of the honor of the moment, and of the glory that they were earning. And as the veteran elderman pressed forward, shouting orders to his warband, a spear ripped through an opening in the shield wall and impaled him. And I'm sure for a moment, everything halted. Time has a funny way of slowing down in moments of crisis. Things go quiet. There's a strange focus to it. And then suddenly, Burtnoth slammed his shield into the side of the spear shaft, breaking it, and ripped the spearhead out of his own body. Then roaring, he surged forward and thrust that very same spearhead back into the neck of the young Viking who had wounded him. The young man dropped to the ground, dead. And taking advantage of this opening in the shield wall, Burtnoth quickly stabbed another Viking, laughing as he did so. And I assume the laugh was because he had faced death and defeated it. The nervous laugh that can come when fear is mixed with exhilaration. But whatever the cause, it can't be denied that the old warrior was in his element. 
He was fulfilling his destiny and serving his king as his forebears had done with the kings of old. But in his rush to exploit the opening in the Viking shield wall, he was dangerously unguarded. He had left his own shield wall and his warband behind him. And in that moment, a Viking saw his opportunity and hurled his spear at the English lord. The weight of the spear and the skill of the wielder rendered Burtnoth's armor useless. It punctured straight through his body. The young member of the Hearthrod, seeing this, rushed to Burtnoth's side, pulled the spear out of his body, and in a rage, impaled the Viking who had wounded his lord. But things were turning against the English. Burtnoth was too wounded to stand, and he fell to the ground. Around him, the English began to lose ground. Seeing the body of his elderman on the ground, Godric, son of Otta, panicked and leapt on Burtnoth's horse, fleeing the battle. The rest of the men, upon seeing Godric on Burtnoth's horse, thought that it was the elderman who was retreating, and so much of the fyrd fled the field behind him. Only the small group of thanes who stood guarding the elderman's body remained. And then, a northman, seeing the fine armor, the gilded sword, and the expensive accessories that Burtnoth was wearing, rushed to strip him of his marks of station. But the old grizzled elderman wasn't dead yet, and he struck out fiercely with his sword, wounding the Dane. But there were too many Vikings, and even though members of his hearthrod stood their ground and fought to defend their lord's body, the battle had been lost. And the hearthrod, refusing to surrender, were eventually cut down and joined their lord in death. This was an unmitigated disaster. Elderman Burtnoth, the second highest ranking elderman in England and one of their most experienced war leaders, had given up his clear advantage and chose to engage the Vikings in honorable combat as if this was the days of Penda. But these weren't the days of Penda. Things had changed. And by failing to fight the war that was in front of him, by assuming that his opponent shared the same perspectives and goals that he had, and by holding himself to an old set of norms that his opponents didn't share, Burtnoth had weakened his position substantially. And he, his hearthrod, and large portions of the East Saxon Ferd paid for that mistake with their lives. The shock of this event can't be overstated. This wasn't a mere Thane or some Reeve who had been killed by the Vikings. This was the second most powerful elderman in all of England. And upon hearing of this loss, King Athelred turned to his council for advice. And Archbishop Sigurich the Sirius made a proposal. He suggested that the king take up the Vikings' offer and pay them the tribute that they asked for. 10,000 pounds of silver. And on the advice of his archbishop, Athelred paid his first Danegeld. It wouldn't be the last. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast.gmail.com. And if you're into social media, we have a bunch of different communities that you can join, and you can find links to all of them in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.